Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. It's Father's Day weekend, so I hope all the dads out there are having a great time staying safe and staying happy. Today, I meet two dads who have written books about dads. Later, Dan Robson stops by to talk about his book, Measuring Up, a memoir of fathers and sons. Now, you know him as the author of numerous books about sports, about people like Pat Quinn, but in his new book, he writes a tender memoir of fathers and sons, of love and loss and learning to fill boots that are just a size too big. We'll also meet Steve Patterson. He's a comedian, host of CBC Radio's incredibly popular program, The Debaters, and dad to Scarlett and Nora. Today, we'll talk about his first book, Dad Up, a funny and wise look at what it means to be a dad in this day and age. First up, let's meet Deanna Marsigliese, character art director for Pixar Animation Studios. Today, we'll talk about Luca, a movie many families will enjoy together this weekend on Disney+. The animated movie is a coming-of-age story about one young boy experiencing an unforgettable summer filled with gelato, pasta, and endless scooter rides in an Italian seaside town. Luca shares these adventures with his newfound best friend, but all the fun is threatened by a deeply held secret. He's a sea monster from another world just below the water's surface. We do not go anywhere near the surface. Got it? Everything good is above the surface. Walking. Air! <gasps> the sky, clouds, the sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. Have you ever gone to the human town? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of an expert. Tell me if working on Luca was twice as much work because <laughs> you have to design all the characters and many of the characters have, and this doesn't give anything away, they've got two physical forms. So is it twice as much work? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is twice the work. And and so tell me how you approach it. You uh, obviously work with the script probably at a very early stage. Uh, tell me what happens and how you create the look of each of these characters. Well, you know, the story is fluctuating, especially early on. I, I came on very early. So, of course, the story is in flux. Things are always changing. You can't hang your hat too much on the particulars of the story, Right just yet, but where we do hang our hats is who are these characters at the heart? What is not gonna change, right? Who are they authentically? And that's what, how we work with story. And we communicate, art in, informs story, story informs art. And where we really begin is with the director and asking questions like, what does this movie communicate? What does this movie represent? How do you want it to feel? And I took a lot of cues from, of course, the director, Enrico's uh, personal drawing style, which is loose and fun and gestural and textural. Right. And so I just knew right off the bat, this is going to be fun. We want to keep it youthful and um, playful and direct, but sophisticated. Those That was kind of the order of the day. And that's what we work towards. And you say that you don't hang the character design on individual story pieces, because I've always heard uh, about Pixar that they do these screenings, they'll work, you'll work on something for a year and then they'll do a screening and people go, mm, I like this, I don't like this and things disappear yes. that maybe you've worked on for a very long time. Right, and that's why the most important thing is to know who the characters are. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that for me, 
part, part of that process is actually tapping into how I can relate to them, to bring myself to the character and try to connect with them. Um, and of course, as we develop the story, we develop the characters that goes hand in hand. The more we know, the more they grow, the more we can really be confident that we're choosing the right look and feel for the design. And how did octopuses or octopi, I guess, and squids <laughs> figure into the creation of the sea monster characters? Aha. Well, we did look at a lot of I'm going to say cephalopods. There you go. Good work. I believe. Um, for transformation, right? Because I've, of course, you know, I'm working, I'm iterating on Luca's design, and we have multiple characters that transform. Iterating on and, and Just so people know that haven't seen the film, that transform uh, from sea monsters when they go to dry land, they take on a human form. So, That's just right. so people know. That's right. It's the water that turns them into sea monsters. And when they dry and they're above land, they turn human. So I'm iterating on, on human Luca, and he's very adorable. Iterating on sea monster Luca, also very adorable. Now what? Right? Because one has to turn into the other. Um, and I think that's where the greatest challenge was. Where octopi and squids come into this is that um, with, with, with an octopus, you know, they can camouflage. And they have these uh, pockets, these uh, pockets of color that pulse on the skin. If you really zoom in, um, and that was a decorative, it had like an artistic, decorative, beautiful quality that we wanted to take. So that's what happens when you see that transformation. You're going to notice that, uh, say, we're starting with Luca Human. You're going to see pockets of color rise to the surface of the skin. It's a very on a very cellular level. They pulse, right? Very multicolored. The scale, they expand into the shape of a scale. The scale rises from the skin. And then it's something that flushes over the entire body. So that's where they factor in. You're listening to my interview with Deanna Margliese, character art director for the new Pixar film, Luca, now on Disney+. Plus. And how long does it take to arrive at that? Because it's a crucial part of the movie. And if, if it's not convincing, if it doesn't work, it kind of takes away from that moment. And that moment is so important. So were there other ideas that, that didn't work? Sure, there are always. I mean, we iterated for a long time. And mind you, there are so many artists working on this. It's yeah. hyper collaborative, right? I mean, I'm on the art end. There are technical artists that can actually make this stuff happen, right? Um, yeah, we did iterate and there were things that didn't work. We had versions where the scales were very active flipping, shifting, too abrupt, too mechanical. Um, one thing we wanted to really get across was that this is a transformation happening below the surface, coming from within Luca, happening from Luca, not to Luca. Right. And when the scales got too mechanical, it looked like a coat of armor, right? And we also had creepy things. We've got tails retracting, fingers splitting in two. I mean, not done properly, this could look really creepy. And the film is lyrical and beautiful and lovely. So the transformation also had to be those things. And we did it. It just took some time, you know? Yeah. The good ideas always take time. Yes, they do. And the bad ones fall away and it's no big deal. <laughs> That's right. Now, let's talk about the design of uh, the sea monsters a little bit. Okay. I saw the, the movie this morning, and when I first saw the sea monsters, I was kind of put in the mind of 
uh, Sigmund the Sea Monster, of the creature from the Black Lagoon a little bit, from all sorts of things that, that started to flash through my head. What flashed through your head as you were creating these characters? Well, we started from the most uh, antique and medieval depictions, right? There are these maps called Carte Marine, and they have decorative sea monsters all over them. Um, from there, we started looking at Japanese block prints, scientific illustration, world folk art, anything hand carved. Um, what we wanted to do was create something unique, uh, unlike anything you'd seen before, but we also wanted to maintain that decorative quality because that's where they originate. Um, so that's where you get the facial fins and the beautiful tails, the curly cues and the scales, all those details culminate to make basically a moving art, moving art, sea monster is moving art. Yeah. And then you'll notice too, when you look at Luca's family, the older they get, the bolder we are with these statements. So you see the nonna character, his grandmother, her tail has atrophied completely and knotted, right? It's got barnacles all over it because she's slow. But when you see that tail design, it's actually very iconic. You go back to these antique maps and you see that all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it was a bit of a combination of different things, but. Yeah. Well, you're from Canada, but you were, you're based in San Francisco now. And mm -hmm. when I was last in San Francisco, they have uh, some great tiki bars there. I also mm -hmm. thought of, uh, that a little bit as I was watching this film. I was thinking of Trader Vic's and and uh, what's it called? Zombie Village is pretty That's fantastic. Big and, Idol's a good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, 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 did you go there for inspiration? Sure. I mean, a different <laughs> kind of inspiration maybe, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, how long have you been with Pixar? Ooh, uh, nine years. Nine years. And was that one of your first jobs after Sheridan? How did it work? No. Oh, gosh, no. No, I'm going to date myself, but I've been doing this for longer than I'd like to admit. Like, we're closing in on 20 years. Oh, um, wow. And uh, no, it was a very meandering path. I'm grateful for all of it. I actually started at Chuck Gamich, which is a small animation house. Um, it was in Toronto downtown. Um, and I, I bounced around to a lot of different places, but I always learned a lot. Started in commercials, went to television for a while. Um, then I was freelancing for feature companies from Canada and Pixar was one of my clients. And then eventually Pixar just said, you know what? Let, you wanna, you wanna come in house? <laughs> you wanna move over here? Well, I've been to the Pixar campus and I, I can't imagine what it must be like to walk through those doors as an employee. I was taken aback just by how cool it is and the cool stuff that comes out of there. What was that like for you? It's it's very cool. I mean, I will admit there are days, it's a job, yep. I'm just living my life. So, yep. you know, there are days where I just breeze right in and I'm just like, oh gosh, I have to get to this meeting, you know? Um, <laughs> But uh, I will say it happens more often than not that I walk onto that campus and I'm like, I cannot believe this because I was thinking about Pixar when I was a kid, yeah. you know, um, and the, the campus is surrounded by these gates full of roses, you know, you can't really see too much and it's kind of epic to walk into the main building, which is in itself so iconic and to see our characters everywhere and beautiful light. Uh, it is very dramatic and very cool. That was Deanna Marsigliese, character art director for the new Pixar film, Luca, now on Disney+. Plus.
Steve Patterson, my next guest, is a comedian, host of CBC Radio's The Debaters, and he's a dad to Scarlett and Nora. Today we talk about his first book, Dad Up. It's getting great reviews. Denise Donlin said it should come with a, quote, read before parenting sticker, and Brent Butt, creator of Corner Gas, called it touching and very funny. Here's Steve Patterson. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to get it out there. Yeah, because it's been a bit of a journey. So it started off as a book about being a first-time father, yeah. and then things changed, and the book was delayed, and you had a, a, a little bit of a rewrite. What happened? Uh, her name is Nora. She <laughs> happened. We weren't really expecting her. We uh, I was writing it very much from the perspective when it started of I'm the youngest of five sons, and now I'm the dad of one little girl. How do I, how do I do this? There's no, I've never been <laughs> trained in this. And um, just as sort of the first deadline was looming, we found out Nancy was pregnant with Nora and that extended our, my deadline by a year. The publisher said, well, you better, <laughs> you better not completely ignore this. Like let's, <laughs> let's talk about being, having two little girls now. So, so the second half of the book is sort of the, the first year of Nora's life. And it really did sort of change perspective again. It was a whole new challenge. So I'm, I'm grateful to my publisher. I'm grateful to Nora for extending my deadline. I hope she can do that with every deadline I have for the rest of my life. Now, did it change uh, some of your opinions about child rearing? I am the second of two. And uh, my parents raised me quite differently than they did my brother. Uh, mm. There was now more of a gap. I think there's eight years between us. Yeah. But they they got used to having a kid around. They got used to having other people pick up the baby and that kind of thing. Did uh, Nora's uh, upbringing and rearing uh, feel different to you than your first child's? Well, I mean, it's it was an interesting thing because I was around a lot more. Obviously, everyone's been around home more. So yeah. uh when Scarlett was born, I had to go on the road. I had to do a tour for like when she was one month old, I went on the road for a month. So I, at that point missed half of her life. And I, I felt awful and terrible about that, but I it had to be, I had to do it. And, um, Nora, you know, I made sure I was around when she was, uh, when her arrival came, I had canceled a couple of things that were coming up and then the world uh, canceled <laughs> the rest of my things for a year. So I've literally gotten to see every first of Nora that I, that I, I kind of missed a lot of those with Scarlett. So I, it's in that way, it's a, it's a privilege. And I'm sure lots of parents feel that it's a privilege to be around as much for a first, uh, but it's also you know, relentless. And, uh, and it's, it's like, they, they <laughs> I guess it's always supposed to be relentless parenting, but it's, it's really relentless when they never leave. Uh, so well, I guess when you never leave, cause you're just home, true. And you're not working in the last year and a half, uh, the world has ground to a bit of a halt. And so, uh, you're not out doing comedy. You're not on the road doing the debaters, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what's that been like for you? What outlets do you find because you have to stay creative. You have to stay nimble. Uh, what what has that been like for you? I mean, this book was a big part of it. You know, they say, write, write what you know. And in lieu of that, write what you're experiencing on a daily basis. And that's that's been my world. So not only did I get an extended deadline, but then I had a lot of time to actively work on it. Yeah, so yeah. The, I'm sure the book is a lot better and might not have been completed if I didn't have all this time. This was one of my main outlets. 
virtual things, thank God, have started to do lots of lots of those. And I, you know, it's not the same. I really feel for kids going through virtual school at any at any level because it is not the same, and it's really having an effect on our on our daughter Scarlett. Mm-hmm. But there are little moments of light in that. You know, when she's done school, she's literally done that minute, and I can be home, and she we can go to the park and play. Like there's no bus ride home. There's none of that. Um, and it also, it's a challenge for kids who don't have a great attention span. That's <laughs> my daughter does. It. When I, whenever I check in on her in school, she's lying on the ground uh, working on something that's not school. So that's a challenge. Of course it is. Now, uh, we'll get back to the book in a sec. Have you done any stand-up virtually? Because I've seen a couple of these things. I've, I've supported friends of mine who were stand-up mm-hmm. comics, and I've watched them. And it's it's odd. We're all used to Zoom calls now, yeah. but without the feedback of an audience, without the the you know immediate feedback, I guess uh, it it must feel weird to do it. It does feel weird, and I and I don't try to pretend that it isn't. I mean, I spend the first five minutes of each show explaining why this is weird and why. <laughs> why we didn't get into comedy to entertain the, the apps on our screen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I do try to make it as much as a regular show as I can. So I walk in at the beginning, I have an office that I can set up as a studio. I've done quite a few uh, shows, especially corporate shows. You know, you and I have worked on a couple of corporate things yeah. together and thank goodness a lot of those are still going because if not, I mean, if, if I really feel for comedians that just rely on clubs because if the clubs aren't going, you're not, I don't know what you're doing. So uh, I, I've been fortunate to have quite a few shows for big groups that, I, that I've learned how to do it. But I, like every other comedian, can't wait to get into a room full of people. You're listening to my interview with Steve Patterson, author of Dad Up, available now wherever you buy fine books. It's coming. We'll, we'll cross our fingers and think I'm that- I'm quoting you on that, Richard Wynn. <laughs> Tell me what day. I'll be there. I'll, I'll, I'll email you. I'll email Please. you about it when I know. Um, this book is not meant to offer advice to new dads. It is more just a chronicle of what it's like to be a new dad. Why did you choose to go that route? Well, I didn't want to do a how-to book. And the main reason, first of all, is because I don't really know how to. And I don't I don't think anyone does. That was the main reason. But, you know, I called home in, in one of those times when I was on the road and Scarlett was very young and Nancy was in tears. And I said, what's wrong? And she's just reading everything, you know, reading everything about parenting. And we're supposed to hit this guideline and supposed to hit this guideline. And I'm not sure if she's on that road. And I said, you know, you know what none of those books have done is they haven't raised our child. And we're going to, we have to live it. Like it's, it's so, and there's contradictory advice. And I, and I, that drives me crazy. You know, I get that there are child experts. I get that you can read things, but if you just read things, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So my, I can hear my publisher in my head going, don't tell people to not read things. You're, you're selling a book, idiot. But um, this is, it's very conscious of, of just having fun and finding the humor in things that you might not think are that humorous when you're going through them at the time. I think all parents have to develop that, that muscle. You have talked a great deal about your upbringing uh, in your comedy. It's, it's obviously something that's been on your mind for a long time. You are the youngest of five. Mm-hmm. And uh, you describe your dad, whose nickname was Slim, uh, as frugal <laughs> to an extreme. Uh, and I love when he says something like, I'm not sure that I was there for the actual birth. Like, I'm not sure. He had so many kids that he wasn't sure if he was there for your birth or not. So 
Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what you might have learned from him, I I even if it, even if you just soaked it in without actually realizing it at the time, or perhaps you did kind of what I did with my dad and go the opposite direction of everything. That he <laughs> yeah. It's a combination of those two. I think you're right. You know, my dad has, in has inspired a lot of the comedy I've done over the past 20 years. Uh, and it's really just things that he said to me growing up. I haven't changed. anything. <laughs> He's just, he just, he says to me, you know, that's not funny. Like I was just telling you to, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can say this Richard, so you can edit it out. But you know, one of the first sentences I remember is him saying the door is not an arsehole. It doesn't shut by itself. That's literally one of the first sentences I remember learning about shut the door that I paid for that energy. So, I mean, I just say things like that, that he said all the time and it comes out as funny, but he did have a great, he does. I'm not going to talk about my dad past dance. He's 89. He's still very much here with us. Thank goodness. And um, he did have a great common sense way of giving advice. Uh, even if he didn't know he was giving advice at the time. And even though he contradicted a lot of the things <laughs> that he would tell us, right. he still knew what was right and what was wrong. Um, what was, or what is your family's reaction to hearing jokes and, and commentary about themselves in your work? I mean, I think they like it. They they keep coming to shows, you know, my brothers when I'm in their area or whatever. But um, yeah, I, you know, and my wife, Nancy, you know, thank goodness I was already, we met when I was doing comedy. If if I had just suddenly switched careers and started to suddenly make our whole life an open book, literally, then uh, she might not like it as much, but she knows who she married. And, and I, I'm in awe of, of her. So I, it's, you know, you can't get in too much trouble when all you're saying are, really glowing things about your, about your partner, because you're a hundred percent, you know, you don't have to make anything up. I, 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 I shudder to think what would happen if I was on my own trying to, to parent these girls, I would have no idea. I would take them uh, to, you know, uh, I would just be in the park all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I would be doing. Kids like parks, take them to the park, <laughs> take them to the park all the time. <laughs> More swings. <laughs> Now, you are known as a comedian. Uh, the book has certainly a lot of relatable and, and funny moments in it, but you also uh, write about uh, your struggles, you and Nancy, and the struggles to have children. Tell me a little bit about making the decision to open up that part of your life uh, in a book like this. Uh, I have to give credit to Nancy for convincing me sort of to include that experience because I wasn't going to, I was going to just get right into dadding, you know, Scarlett was born, everything changed. This right. is how it changed. And then look back at how my dad dadded me, that was going to be the whole book. And Nancy said, you know, when we went through this, we learned that so many other people uh, that friends of ours had gone through it, but no one talks about it. And, um, and no dads talk about it because no one thinks the dad is, is actively involved in it. And, this isn't about getting uh, sympathy for dads. It's certainly uh, devastating for the woman first and foremost, but it is something you should go through. Well, you shouldn't go through it, but if you're going through it, you have to support each other. And uh, I'm happy that I included it. A lot of people are, are bringing it up and, you know, we did find the humor in the struggle as well, which <laughs> helps I think in the end, but when we were going through it, it was not, not a funny time, but again, you know, if I can find a way to, to get a couple smiles through a bad situation and to encourage people that are super 
uh, frustrated to keep to keep going because it is you, you wonder whether you want to keep going at some point and and we're obviously very thankful that that we did. You're listening to my interview with Steve Patterson, author of Dad Up, available now wherever fine books are sold. Funny that you have two little girls and from a family of all boys, that must have been a learning curve. What's is there one thing? that would be different. I mean, you talk about bullying, uh, yeah. with, you know, of having four older brothers, I'm sure it was not easy. Uh, but is there, is, is there one thing that you can point to that feels much different in your family with Nancy and Scarlett and Nora, as opposed to, uh, growing up with four brothers, probably, uh, punching you and pinching you <laughs> constantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, my brother Ross features prominently in this book and the age difference between Ross and I is about the same as it is between Scarlett and Nora. So I, I do watch them and and wonder, did, did Ross and I go through this? And we, and we didn't, I, when I, once I mine material, I'm like, no, we, we it wasn't quite the same dynamic. There was more, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of subtlety, a lot of fist fights. <laughs> you know, I see the caring moments where Scarlett does a song about Nora and hugs her and holds her. And I'm like, I just, can't imagine that happening between my brothers and I. It's not that we don't love each other, but I mean, the love was more in, in noogies and wedgies than in right. actual songs and, and hugs. Um, but I'm I'm amazed to see, in a bad way, I'm amazed to see that bullying starts for boys and girls very early and that, you know, manipulation and little head games that the kids are playing with each other. Uh, I hate to see that, but it does happen early and, and, developing ways to kind of deal with that. And again, bringing in humor if you can is I think the way to do it. Cause in, in my day, there wasn't subtlety and humor. It went very quickly to, to fist fights. Well, don't you say something like uh, the bullies at school weren't, you know, that big a deal simply because over the breakfast table, you had probably already been, you know, slapped around a little bit by your other brothers. Oh, no one fought me like for real growing up. Not no one outside my family because I was the youngest of the Patterson boys, and it was uh, that could be a whole other book really in it in itself. But I mean, you know, no no kid in grade four was going to scare me when my high school age brother was <laughs> was fighting me in the morning. I, like I'm not scared of you from grade four to eight. So yeah, that was I, I grew up kind of fearless that way. But it's uh, you know I I say in the book once I learned. Scarlett was being bullied by like a six-year-old. My first reaction was, I got to call my brother Ross, get him in here from Nova Scotia, show this little girl what's what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not an option. <laughs> uh, do you have plans for another book? Oh, yeah. I'm always thinking of it. This was really sort of the first era, you know, from mm -hmm. Scarlett zero to five and uh, Nora coming on the scene. So I can definitely draw on this experience, do more parenting. I might combine parenting with politics i've lo i've noticed that there are uh, it's going to sound facetious but there are so many traits that young children share with politicians uh that it's really a world waiting to be to be mined and it's it's uncanny really and, and what what are those oh just the need for attention and the uh you know the things that you say when you're learning to talk yeah. always <laughs> asking for money we, that's it. That's it. Right. Where's my allowance? But where's the, where's more attention for me and just saying silly things. There's just higher stakes with politicians, but you know, it's, uh, it's amazing the traits that two-year-olds share with a lot of, of politicians, I think. And I'm going to, I might want to draw the, the direct connections between that and a book. Well, I'll look forward to that. Uh, thanks so much for talking about your book today. 
Hey, thank you for having me, Richard. This is a pleasure. I appreciate it. That was Steve Patterson, author of Dad Up, available now wherever you buy fine books. Now let's meet Dan Robson, who stops by to talk about his new book, Measuring Up, a memoir of fathers and sons. We'll talk about what he learned from his dad after his dad passed away. Here's the beginning of my conversation with Dan Robson. You've written about other people like uh, Pat Quinn, like Johnny Bauer, uh, but this book is a different thing. You're writing about yourself, and for a lot of journalists, uh, that's a, a, a tough transition. You don't use the word I a lot <laughs> when you're uh, typically writing about other people. Tell me a little bit about that, about turning the, the focus of the book inward. Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult process because, as you said, I'm so used to asking other people to be open and vulnerable about, you know, reflecting on their lives and you know it's sort of I step in and go tell me everything about mm -hmm. um what you've endured and what you've gone through and, and how you reflect on it and all your mistakes and everything and I and now having to do it to myself um I mean I think it's only uh deserving that I would have to do that to myself after asking so <laughs> to do it but it was it was very difficult it, it taught me a lot about the process of what I uh, do with other people mm -hmm. um but it, it it helped I mean I, I was actually was quite surprised by how um, challenging it was to sort of be honest, because I had this sort of, uh, at the time I was exploring, I was going through a really difficult time in my life. And so um, as I, as I worked on this book in the months and, um, you know, years after I, I was reflecting on the time and I, I, I realized that I could see myself with more clarity um, later on in life. And as we do, but it was really interesting to see that evolve and see myself almost as a character um, as opposed to just, you know, me. Has it changed your expectation of what you will get from your subjects in future? Yeah, I think it's something that I've, I've had to reflect on. I've written um, several projects simultaneous to this and, and after, and I think it probably gave me um, a better sense of how to ask questions and, and, and what I'm asking the people and understanding that, um, you know, sometimes reflection takes a bit of time. And so mm -hmm. it, I think asking questions again and going back and speaking to them again, depending on how much time I'd have. But um, if I'm working on a book project, for example, just realizing that um, there are sort of several ways to get to um, the truth of something or the most honest perspective on something. And knowing, I guess, the way that I, I wasn't intentionally hiding that from myself, but that it took time to reflect and to see that I can, I think I'm more understanding of, of how difficult what I'm asking other people to do is. Um, it's not just sort of, you know, I'm asking questions and you I'll, you have to tell me all of these answers. Mm -hmm. it, it, you might not, you might want to tell me the best answers possible, but it's difficult to see ourselves sometimes. So I think that it, I have a little more empathy about that process. You're out of your comfort zone uh, a little bit on this. Was it cathartic for you? Yeah, it was very cathartic. I mean, there's this sort of, um, I mean, there's the two processes here, like in the process of actually destroying things and building them again in the house um, mm -hmm. after my father passed away. Um, there was the process itself of, of that was cathartic sort of in the narrative, but then in stepping outside of that narrative and then piecing it together uh, from a bit of a distance, um, that was also quite cathartic. And I, I think there was a lot of parallels in that process. And I was able to sort of, um, to, to, sort of tear everything apart and piece it together and build it up again. And I think it, it provided a sense of clarity that I was searching for. I mean, this is what I do. It's my, it's my trade. So being able to um, complete something and then look back on it in its, in its totality and think um, this is, this is it captures in the best way I can um, the journey I went on, what I felt about my father, what I lost in him and, and, and how I'm continuing to grapple um, with our relationship in the years past or in the years since. But 
it, it, it also was sort of, it, it created this sort of sense of completion. Um, you know, and I, well, I'll always miss him and go and carry on and, um, in my life, and I hope I always do. Um, I think that this helped piece everything that I needed mm-hmm. to understand together. What is it, do you think, about the generational differences uh, between your father's generation uh, where, as you say, like he could fix things, he, he would, he was a, a guy that would just sort of take care of it at home, yeah. as opposed to maybe your generation, my generation, slightly different, where my first call is to someone when someone <laughs> breaks, my first thing is to pick up the phone and find someone that can fix it. Uh, why yeah. do you think there's that generational shift? That's such a good question, because I've, I've thought about that. I mean, I, I certainly have friends who are are handy, interested in it, but it feels like a, it's like a skill that's that's being um, you know diminished with time. And I think mm-hmm. there's a couple things. I mean, I, in the educational system I grew up on, I grew up in, we pushed aside trades, we pushed aside shop class, and, and mm-hmm. doing it our, with ourselves. And it it wasn't it was it was viewed as remedial in some sense, and it was sort of pushed. It was literally, I think that was the phrase that was used at the yeah. time when I was going to elementary high school and elementary school. And um, I think that the way that we as a society have, have framed working with our hands and, and doing the things that we consider um, sort of like blue collar work. I think that has diminished the respect that we have for the art of it. And I, I really do think it is an art. And so I think that um, I, I know friends who have, who have sort of embraced that art and are good with cars and good with fixing things themselves. And I really envy the joy they find in it. And I think that's it. We view it as work. We view it as we're so busy with everything else. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're constantly have things to be doing. We don't have time to stop and spend a day you know, fixing our car or, or putting up a new wall or fixing yeah. our plumbing. Like we, we, can, we can find someone else to do that because we've got so much else to do. And I think there's something um, really beautiful about stopping that sort of constant, constant forward pace and fixing something that was from the past that we can continue to carry forward. And, and I think that that's, we've lost the art of it. I think that's perhaps why um, we don't view it with, I think, the, the respect that we should. What did you learn that was unexpected? I mean, I, well... One of the things I did learn that I guess was kind of expected was that I'm really bad at it. Yeah. So I think I went out and said, um, <laughs> okay, I, I, I already think I don't know what I'm doing. And I then confirmed that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so that that was a process of just sort of realizing who I am and, and who I'm not, but who I think I can be uh, and going forward. And I think what I, what I was surprised by was the sense of accomplishment in it. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated throughout this process. And I think part of that obviously was, was shadowed by the, the um, guilt and, and grief and everything I was carrying at that time. I, I had a lot of um, feelings of um, to, to not, not measuring up to, for example, like just in terms of being, not being able to do what he did and seeing these imperfections in the walls and, and sort of the unclean cuts that I was doing with, with drywall and everything just looked wrong to me. And I remember um, at the very end of this process, when I sat downstairs, I walked downstairs and looked across this this space that me and my uh, colleagues and my friends had finished. And um, you know, I'd I'd been the, the worst of the group doing it, and I I learned a lot though. And I locked, looked around and I thought, you know, I think I think Dad would be proud of what we did. I think he'd want to fix a bunch of stuff, in yeah. it, but he'd he'd be proud of the effort. And I think that for me it was the surprise in the um, in the final product and and feeling in myself also allowing myself to feel a sense of pride. You're listening to my interview with Dan Robson, author of Measuring Up, a memoir of fathers and sons, available wherever you buy fine books. Now, having said that, and having read the written the book, uh, do you still grapple with the relationship with your father? I do. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, actually, today's his, his birthday. Uh, so today's sort of a, um, a time of year where I always sort of think a lot about him, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I mean, I, I, I had 
I'm so fortunate to, um, we had our, our son into the world last year, um, last May, he just turned one. And, and so I've really over the last year and this time sort of thought about the father that I want to be. And, and that's in direct relation to the father that, that he was. And so in sort of thinking about the things that we, we experienced together when, when he was alive um, and the things I regret that we didn't experience together when he was alive, I'm factoring all those into the relationship I have now with my son and he's still quite young but I'm looking forward to all the years to come in which um, I I don't allow myself to take for granted the time that we have that which I did take for granted when when my father was around and that's my deepest regret so I mean he's he's someone I think about all the time I, I you know I still um, I think about um, you know just flashes of memories that come back but but now you know, when I'm sitting there and, and my son's cuddling next to me I, I sort of think, see the roles reversed and I see how um, I can in a way have the relationship that I lost it's a different relationship um, but it can still be a, a beautiful one and, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where it, where it takes us well your son is just over a year old now what do you hope that he eventually will take away from this book I, I hope that he actually takes some of the tools that I have in my um, <laughs> my shed and, and and learns how to use them so he can fix things for for me um, but I I, um, I hope that he takes away the sense of two things I mean I want him to know who my, my father was I mean he'll never get to meet my his grandfather um, I want him to meet him through the pages of this book and then I, I want um, I want him to understand how important my relationship with him is to me. I want him to sort of, when he's able to read this book and, and understand the, um, what I went through, I, I, I want um, that to help frame the way that we relate. You say that you are proud of this book, but you were worried about it uh, at the same time. Why so? You know, it's, it's the most uh, vulnerable I've ever been. Um, I write about some, um, some, some chapters in my life that I'm not proud of um, going through, uh, especially the, the particular year after he died. I mean, I was quite embarrassed by how um, how grief, you know, basically threatened to sort of collapse my life and the way it took me. So, I mean, I it was it was a process of being vulnerable in a way I've asked other people to be vulnerable and putting it out there as a book. And then just in general, I mean, there's a real weird thing when you write about yourself and your world and there's an insecurity that comes into it. You go like, is this, is this interesting? Will people right. connect to this? Will they see themselves in these pages? And I mean, that's the end goal for any storyteller, any writer, you want people to connect to it. Um, and so I think my fear is in that sort of the, in the silence of it all and wondering if anyone will care and, and if I was just silly to even have put it down. But I mean, those are all natural insecurities. And at the end of the day, I think um, the sense of having finished it, the, the sense of accomplishment and having finished it, um, I think uh, has, has pushed aside all of those insecurities. That was Dan Robson talking about his new book, Measuring Up, a memoir of fathers and sons. And you can pick that book up wherever fine books are sold. And while you're there, why not check out Steve Patterson's new book called Dad Up? Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe. Enjoy all the best dad ever mugs and neckties you get this year. And have a great Father's Day.